Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. I'm so happy to have Roman Molino Dunn, film composer on the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, Roman. Thanks for having me, Zeph. Really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So as you said, I'm a film composer. I live in Los Angeles now, but I own a recording studio and audio post-production house in New York City called Miratone. So I was there for a long time and I was scoring movies and producing songs for artists. And we did a lot of stuff at the studio, like ADR for films and sound design and mixing. And we still do that, but because I'm pretty much full-time scoring films and TV shows now, I moved out to Los Angeles and I go back to New York City sometimes for some recording sessions if I need to, or just to check in. Nice. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in Pennsylvania, actually, in the mountains, in the Poconos, if anybody's familiar with that. Oh, yes. The Poconos. There there used to be many commercials for the Poconos when I was a kid, for Mount Airy Lodge. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, was definitely. Poconos, right? a, yeah, it was a whole lot of honeymoon advertising. Yeah. I, I've been there with my family when I was a kid. I really liked it. Nice. Yeah. So were you always a fan of movies were you always inclined to do music i guess tell us a little bit about how you first your first inception into the field sure so i actually was a lifelong composer and musician and when i was a kid i thought that meant i would be writing music for orchestras to be heard on its own, what we call a concert hall composer so somebody just writing music for music's sake and i wasn't really aware at that time necessarily that there was a career in multimedia and i went to college for classical music composition and music theory and it wasn't until a bit later when i was producing artists music for artists at the recording studio that i started scoring commercials and then some of the directors for those commercials went on to do their own narrative forms and i got the call for those and then some of those people had a little more success on some other films and that's how i got my start it was cool because it was full circle for me i wanted to be a composer and then i got sidetracked after studying music composition of running a recording studio but it turned out the recording studio brought me back to composition because of the people who came through there and needed the services of a musician for their their multimedia. Oh, that's pretty cool. And so I, I have a kind of a funny story because I was I already wanted to have you on the podcast and I saw a couple of clips on your social media. I'm like, oh, Roman seems like an interesting guy to speak to. And you're so prolific. You've done so much work, it seems, which is pretty amazing. Oh, thank you. But it happens to be just coincidentally I was watching, like after I already scheduled to have you on, I watched the film, The Card Counter. And it was like just one of these movies that's been on my list of things to watch forever. And I watched it, I loved it. And it was probably one of the best films I've seen all year, actually. And then I saw that you had worked on it. So I thought that was pretty coincidental and it was like a synchronicity. And I thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah, what, totally. what, what was your role in the film? So that one, I didn't score the music for that one. I recorded it. Paul Schrader came to the recording studio with his composer and some musicians, and they spent about a month working with me, recording all different types of instruments, vocals, mixing parts of the film, specifically, sorry, mixing the score for the film. And it was really cool. My work is generally not in person when I'm scoring a film, but Paul Schrader doesn't really work that way. He wants to do it in like this creative communal fashion. And it was a whole lot of hanging out with different musicians and recording stuff. And the composer, Robert Levin-Bean, who was working on it, was performing a lot of it. And they were looking for a music producer and music engineer who was also a film composer so that I could work on recording this music with the post-production workflow in mind, meaning Robert was performing as he was composing. So they wanted somebody to run the board who would know how to track or record that. So it would be organized for when they went to mix it or send it to the dub stage and to be able to make changes as Paul was asking for them. And I guess elaborate what a dub stage is for people that aren't so versed in film score sure. and sound design and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, it can mean a few things, but it, and it depends on like the size of the production. Really, <laughs> when most people are talking about the dub stage, they're really talking about major, like major studios who are taking to that level. But essentially, it's where you're going to listen to the mix of the dialogue, the sound design, and the music, and laying it all in. So for that project, for example, we were working on the music. And of course, we were we had the dialogue and the sound effects that were already set in, but they weren't the final. Those were just temporary to allow us to work on the music. And then we would send the music off to the mixer, who would mix in the sound design and the dialogue with the music. I think on that film, that was also the dub stage. That's where the director went to review all of the because sometimes the sound design happens in a vacuum too, to some degree, and then it'll come together on the dub stage and they'll be in a proper theater mixing those together. That is how it works on much bigger productions. But I'd say a lot of major films I've worked on these days, like for Netflix or HBO, they may never have gone to a true dub stage. They may be done at a home studio or even if it's a commercial studio and sent somewhere for review, notes are sent back and that process can go on until it's finalized by either the director, the producer, or the streamer. It's some of the larger productions, I would say, that you might run into a true dub stage. That's pretty cool. And what was it like working with Paul Schrader? Paul Schrader, of course, is a a talented director in his own right, the writer of Taxi Driver. That's what he might be most known for. Yeah. Yeah, What was that like? uh, It was crazier than he's known for being a personality to begin with. His social media is full of film criticisms and dissections, and it's he knows it's entertaining. But what made it crazier, and just to start off, we had a great time, and Paul's really nice, and it was fun working together. But we were in the height of COVID when that happened. So it was, that was almost two years ago now when we were actually working on it even though it came out last year. And we all had N95 masks on and we had to get tested every day just because there's a lot of people in a small room and Paul's a little bit older and he had some breathing issues to begin with. We just had to be really careful. It's really hard working in a recording studio when you have a mask on for a number of reasons. One, because there's a lot of vocal music in this. So the singer has to take their mask off. But also you're working these really long hours, seeing 15 hours of communication in close quarters. It's very difficult to handle in an N95 mask. And I was super into wearing masks because I thought it was great that we were being safe, but it's just a hard thing to manage. And aside from that, the world was a little crazy. The subways were a bit crazy. The whole economy was a bit crazy. Everything was just totally unique. So Working on that project at that time in history, uh, both logistically and I guess on a larger society context, it was quite an interesting experience that I won't forget. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you have the context of what was going on in the environment. It certainly was a crazy time. And I was working on a couple of projects at that time. And it feels like even though it was only two years ago, it, feel, it just feels like a whole other era already. <laughs> yeah. Because there's so much uncertainty. But just thinking about this notion of just the environment and the landscape being that way, it's making me think about, is it ever challenging for, and this is something I've always wanted to ask, is it challenging there being so many variables on how somebody's going to be listening to a film? Does that make any oh, sense? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mean the playback? Yeah. Uh, like, device? Like, like people have sure. different levels of sort of quality of like how they're interpreting, yeah. how they're literally listening to it. Not everybody's listening to it in a movie theater with a 5.1. Yeah. They might be watching it on their cell phone or something. What's the sort of thought and consideration to that sort of thing? Yeah, for sure. So that's a huge consideration, both for music and then also for mixing and sound design in general. We check the music on a ton of different devices. At the recording studio, not only do I have beautiful sound speakers, I have a full Atmos setup, right? So there's a lot of speakers in there all around the room and they're very good speakers, but I also have very bad speakers. I also love mixing and headphones. And in fact, when I'm working on a film score, composing, I'm generally doing it in headphones to begin with, so it's completely in a vacuum, and then I'm checking it on other speakers. But what happens is when, and you can get the same story from most professional musicians who've been doing it for 
music production specialist or audio production specialist. When you've been doing it for a long time, you get used to your speakers. So if I hear something on the same kind of speakers I've been using for a decade, I know how it'll sound on other speakers because I checked it before. For example, if you're mixing in headphones, the most common mistake is adding too much bass into it because your headphones don't have a whole lot of bass, so you add too much. And then when you go to the movie theater, it's all just tons of bass because that system there can handle it. Or not mixing for a phone, for example. A lot of people are listening on their phones these days. So you have to know the frequency response range of a phone. And if I'm working on something that is likely to be on a streamer only and not in the theater, I'm probably going to make sure that the mid-range is way better than the low end so that it translates really well to the phone. But again, we just check them these days. And there are a number of tools that we can use to compare those things. The actual harder thing these days to manage is all the different streamers. So when I deliver something for Netflix, the audio specifications for the loudness, like how loud it, the average volume is and how loud the dialogue is and how loud the music and all of that stuff and the file formats for the surround sound deliverables are way different, maybe not way different, but different enough than they are for say HBO or say Hulu. They all have their own specifications and that managing that is a little difficult sometimes, especially if you work on a film that isn't an original, meaning Netflix didn't commission it, but then they buy it and, or they acquire it. And you have to go back later and refactor your mix to match what they were expecting or requiring. Yeah, it does seem to be challenging. And I'm sure there's certain, certain filmmakers and producers are more organized with their workflow than others, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I think most of the time the director and producer that's why they're going to a seasoned composer and sound designer is because they don't want to have to manage those specifications. They want to focus purely on creative and somebody else who's getting hired to handle that department will manage the actual audio deliverables. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I will say as a filmmaker myself and having done a feature film. One of my philosophies about filmmaking in general is I put a lot of care into the sound. Like we, we, for such a small sort of indie film that we were, we put such a disproportionate amount of resources into nice. uh, the, the field sound mixer. Like he was the highest per highest paid person on set <laughs> straight up. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah, and that's wonderful. You should share that with everybody because having that probably made all of your audio posts so much better. Oh yeah, for sure. And then we had these guys from the Bronx. They were really generous that did the score. I got to always give them a shout out. Andrew Marinaccio and Michael Stevens, this group called Data 91. They did this urban Western score that was just fantastic. And it really elevated the film in such a specific and unique way. Like my dream is to still release that as an album on vinyl eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. That's great. Very well. but one of my favorite parts is working with the sound designer. There's a guy named Julian Evans and he was fantastic. And again, we put like a disproportionate amount of resources at the end of the film. Like George and I really sprung out the producer like for like, for a good sound mix, like a 5.1 mix and for Julian to do the sound design. And it really made all the difference in the world. And as a director myself, that was some of my favorite part of working on the film, like just working with Julian of how the score is going to interface with certain scenes. And he did some like really cool stuff where he had the stems from the score and it would blend into the actual scene itself. If there's percussion, for example, like a drum beat, then it would go into a character like knocking on a door and that nice. sort of thing. And we did a bunch of creative things together that, and I just, I just loved it. I loved that part of the process. What's been your experience like working with different directors. They're all very different. Like, how would you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I would like, I guess that's my question. How would you contrast some of these different, I would love to hear like some of these different styles that like, you know, that you've encountered. Oh yeah, sure. I would say every time it's been different, not just to give like a blanket kind of response in that everybody's different. It's really quite cool. It's quite wonderful that all of the directors approach it very differently. There, I have directors who have never told me what to do or even suggested at the beginning a direction to go. 
and I'll do something and then it'll be a conversation. I've had directors who say they know exactly what they want or they think they know exactly what they want and they want to use that as the starting point. And they say, this is the style I'm looking for. Do something custom to picture like this. And sometimes it's perfect because it actually was what they want. Other times it, it didn't work and it confirmed that another direction was better. And I've had a composite of those. So I guess maybe to give some examples, I get one of two things. I'd say there's probably one of three things that happen actually. One is I get a film. I'm going to go four. <laughs> there's four ways that happen. One is I get brought on before they even shoot it. And I love that if the budget allows it. It's a little more expensive because it's really requiring a lot of my time away from other projects that might have that hard deadlines to work with a director. But it happens more in feature films um, when the director already knows they have distribution for something lined up or it's an original or something where I workshop it with them. I maybe have the script. Maybe they say they love this. Let's work on some themes. That's like the truest most artistic exploration I can think of. Then the second way that it happens is I'll get the, and I love this way too, a whole lot actually, I'll get the film finished except for the music. They didn't even temp it. I love those directors so much because it means that the cut works without music, the editing, it, the story can carry without it. And the music is just going to be that cherry that enhances the underlying subtext. I just, I really love that so much. It's hard sometimes though, because you have no idea what they're looking for, but at the same time, they're coming to you. So they want, they like something you've done in the past or your philosophy. So I love that. The third way is when they give you a temp score. And so they had the editor drop in, or if the director is the editor or however it's working, there's music already married to picture. And then that's what you hear composers complain about the most because you're competing against this temporary thing that people have been living with for a long time. So the editor not only got it to work, they, and spent a long time on it, they've all been watching it for a long time. And in their mind, that's the picture. And it's very hard for them to see another direction sometimes. Not always, some directors are just like, yeah, that's terrible, but I just need to put something for the rhythm. And then the fourth way that it goes is the complete opposite of all of that, which is you're writing away from picture. And I've done that on TV shows where I did this YouTube original where, um, they didn't have time to send me the cuts. It was television production. So it's going to happen in a week, each episode. While they're shooting it, they need somebody writing the music and then they're going to put it together. So the way that those would work was I would come up with the themes and I would do essentially like a mini library for them of things that could be shaped to the cut and they would cut to the music. And so that's a totally different way. Wow, that's so fascinating, that fourth way, because you typically have the script in those situations? No, not always. It's more just, hey, like for this one in particular, it was a children's television show. They're like, there will be a segment where each episode they're doing this particular task. This is happening on screen. So we need to come up with that theme. We need to have the music that's going to be in that segment every time. And once I would do that, the editors would edit to that music. And so I was essentially making a library for them based on some references. They'd say, hey, we love this artist. We love that artist. We want the kids' music to sound in this world. Can you write us some stuff? And then once they approved something, I would expand upon it and produce a library for them. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. It definitely seems challenging, but it makes sense, like you said. Yeah, yeah. But yeah that's pretty cool. I like how you outline these different sort of scenarios. Do you find that there are certain scenarios that are more often... And others, like I would imagine, like maybe getting a film with a temp score seems like it could be fairly often. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially now with everybody having access to stock libraries, everybody's trying to pull temp music so that the cut feels closer to done as they're working on it. As I said, I'm not a, you'll hear from composers, that's not their favorite way to work because they're competing against temp music, but it is fairly common. I will say as a director and somebody that comes from an editing background, that's not my favorite way to work either. There's definitely times where I'm editing a scene to like some temp music, but I definitely make a conscious effort 
not to be married to that temp music and be willing to just delete it so that the scene is not married that's to that. no just knowing that's not going to be the final piece you know that's great that i think that speaks very highly of you because i will say it's less common to get it without temp and it's so wonderful to hear from a director and editor that they are enjoying editing without temp score yeah I, and but actually i like your philosophy that you because i never really thought about it that way but it makes sense that the film should be able to live on its own, like the story should be able to be strong enough that it's not completely hinging on that, especially if it's a temp score. Yeah, I will say, I don't know about, let's just put it this way, if it can live on its own, not that it should, right? Because sometimes right. there is that very, but if it's pretty good without temp, it's just going to be great with it. It's just like a way to check it. If it's being awesome without music, once the music's there, it's just going to be so much more awesome. Yeah, for sure. The only the film that I could think of that has no score whatsoever is No Country for Old Men. Are you a fan uh, of that movie? No, not so much. I, I turned that <laughs> movie off after maybe 15, 20 minutes, but I thought there was a score in that. For some reason, I thought there was no music in that film at all. No. I'm, uh, yeah, I thought it was Carter, uh, Carter Burwell. Okay, maybe. Okay. Yeah, maybe I was, yeah I'm looking it up. It. Yeah, it was. It may have been a very... Maybe sparse. sparse yeah, which I really love. Yeah, I like sure. that too sometimes. I noticed on your film Snakehead, the score was not sparse, but it was it, it was minimal in terms of it didn't overpower the scene. Like it wasn't it, like very loud. Yeah, it and just I like depends that, on... Actually, I, it, like sometimes I like that. I think that works because I've seen a lot of like bad indie films where the score is so loud and is drowning everything else. Out, out. And I thought this was more minimalistic in a certain cool way. Yeah, I mean, it's that stuff is always left up to the director, really, for the, or the producer. <laughs> Depends who's trumping who with those decisions. But in that film, what was cool was the music has moments where there is no dialogue and the music does come alive there and there's nothing else. Like there's a chase scene through Chinatown where it's all Chinese kettle drums and and some deep synthesizers that i played and there's no dialogue and it's so loud and then what happens after that is back to dialogue and music behind it and so you really have these standout moments where music gets to be a character but yeah that's thinking about how loud your music is going to get mixed in is what keeps me up at night <laughs> if they're going to turn it down way too much or if they're going to cut a scene i'd actually almost rather they cut a scene than turn it down to being inaudible oh um, okay yeah, because people muting music after I've written it is fine. I'm not sensitive to that at all. But turning it down so low, it's maybe it wasn't the right music for it, if you don't want to hear it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think, I don't know. I don't always look at it that way. I think something could be amazing, but if, it depends if there's dialogue or not. To me, like the, as a direct, like from my point of view as a director, there's times when if there's dialogue, and there's music, it could be drowned, like the dialogue could be drowned out with the music. I, I feel like there's a fine line. And but then, then I always think maybe the music is too active and something else should have been written there under the dialogue. If it's stepping on the, stepping on the dialogue is the number one sin of writing film scores. Yeah. If you step on the dialogue, you, that's it for you. You get fired. That makes sense. And that's why I feel like you see it in, in really bad movies where it's just, it's really drowned out. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I don't know. To me, it just, it depends. There's sometimes where something could be minimalistic and it just, it works like really just for the texture of the scene. I don't think that speaks that, oh, okay. It's not a reflection of the quality of the music being bad. Like it could be amazing, but it just feels like appropriate in that moment. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I love minimal. I'm talking about the volume of it. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I prefer to write something very minimal rather than having something active that's lowered so much. I see what you're saying. That makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting to hear your perspective on it. Did you grow up like paying attention to film scores? Like would you watch like old Hitchcock movies by like with Bernard Herman's score and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Just as being studied composition formally and a lot of that in I think as you got further along in your education, actual film scores start to be studied. Like I really love studying all the, because they were before modern production techniques, so much of it was still actually played by real orchestras. And so the score, the written score existed and you would study that in composition class. 
and studying, I don't know, great scores by John Barry always really excited me that he was one of my favorites because he was so versatile, but the orchestral stuff had just wonderful language to it. But yeah, sure. Bernard Herrmann was like another one for orchestration techniques, specifically the use of the orchestra more than maybe his contrapuntal lines or anything. But yeah, we definitely studied it and scene studies was a big part of that as well. Actually, I think Bernard Herrmann did the score for Taxi Driver. I think that might have been his last score, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. It was written by Paul Schrader, directed by Martin Scorsese, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it all comes full circle. <laughs> sure does. Yeah. It does become a small world in general. I always tell, because I mentor film students, I always tell them, I'm like, this whole industry, even though it's a big industry, it becomes like a really small industry. You start to run into the same people and that sort of thing. Do you find it to be that way as well? Oh, yeah. If you're lucky enough to keep working, you will keep working with the same people. And whether you know it or not, like sometimes I'm on a project and then when the thing comes out, I realize that somebody who was in some department, I had done something else with. But I, I think it's also probably the curse of being in the post-production side of things is that you don't get out to meet people. So I'll never meet most of the producers I work with. I will never meet most of the actors who I've stared at for countless hours. In fact, it's really weird when I meet an actor because I will have been watching them at their most intimate moments over and over again, but never have met them. And I feel like I have this emotional connection as if we were scene partners and they don't know who I am in person. And so we'll be at the screening or the festival and they know everybody and everybody who was on set knows each other. And I just generally know the director and we're friends and maybe we've met in person before, but it's always so funny to me that kind of like secret personal relationship you get with the on-screen talent as a post-production professional. That's so funny because so when I was younger and I first when I was in high school, actually, I worked at a small, very small production company that was doing like events. And I learned editing from editing like weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that on these old school linear decks, really. But I felt the same sort of way. Like I would sit, I would be sitting editing somebody's wedding for a week. And then you feel like you know that person. You're like, oh, I know this couple of people telling stories about them. And if I were to like see these people on the street, I'm like, oh, I know who that is. But they have no idea <laughs> who I am. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. So I appreciate you sharing that because you're articulating a feeling that I had even back in the day, like working at that small studio, <laughs> being a part of these people's personal lives, editing their family moments. But it's like that for you on a in a sort of cinematic way but you know, <laughs> nevertheless there's a lot of emotions in cinema and absolutely and film scores really and elevate the emotional aspect of storytelling i personally like sometimes when things are not on the it's my personal sensibility to not like things that are completely on the nose i feel like i'm that sort of director like in a way like even scorsese or quentin tarantino became known for like putting music in their films that like stuck in the middle with you in Reservoir Dogs might have not been the intuitive thing, but it works so well in that scene. That's an example. I guess the opposite example is if you're watching like certain crime shows on certain major networks and it's like a dramatic scene and it's okay, here's the cue for major dramatic music right now. It's yep. That sort of thing. And not that it's yeah. bad. It's just, it could be like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like, yeah. do you have any thoughts? Yeah, about I that? think, oh yeah, I have many thoughts about that stuff. The, so at the end of the day, that's a directorial decision, really. You might submit as a composer, you may say, I think this could be cool or let me show you an interesting approach. But in general, during the spotting session, the director tends to already have that idea, right? We're going to point out the subtext. We're not going to mirror what's on stage. Or they may say, no, we're doing network television here and we want to help the viewer get into it fully. And it's not more heady than that, right? This is, this should be right on the nose and we should move it along. And I love both of those. There's a reason cliches work. They've been done before and the person is expecting them. And if you do it artistically, it's about 
when you change from one cliche to another and how that journey unfolds and what the viewing experience is like. Some of my favorite movies are by maybe all standards considered not artistic or not very deep. And it's because they executed the movie going experience so very well for a baseline viewing experience. There is a place for that stuff. And I love that. But at the same time, I've also done a lot of more like artistic indie films that got major distribution. And almost in all of those instances, the music was more about the underlying vibe, the world we were creating, not what exactly is happening on screen at every single scene change. Yeah, I agree. I think I say this in general, I feel like film in general is like hypnosis. It's like when it's good, when it's done the right way, it should be like almost like hypnosis. Like somebody, when they say, oh, I got really into that film. What does that mean? They were like pulled into the world of that film. And I think really good cinema filmmakers that are strong in their craft, they know how to make a vibe. Like that scene has a vibe. Like Stanley Kubrick, if you have a party, right? And you throw on the movie A Clockwork Orange in the background, like now the movie, that's the vibe, that's the vibe of the party then. That yep. that has taken over the vibe of that party. <laughs> yep. And I mean, I feel like a lot of that too is just, is music, right? Sound design, music. And because you could have that movie on and never even look at it, I think. And just hearing it, just the way it's done. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I like I said before, and just in general, like cinema is as much of an audio experience as it is a visual experience, in my opinion. I mean, it's like thought of as a visual medium, but I think the audio aspect is to me equally as important. And actually my cinematographer that I work with really often, Alex Gray, he would say the same thing as well. He wouldn't say, no, the visual superseded. He would rank the importance as equal. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. So I guess now switching gears a little bit, I'd like to talk about a couple of different now, typically on the podcast, we talk about two sort of favorite movie scenes from anybody's favorite films of all time. And we're going to talk about a couple of scenes that you've worked on that from a couple of films that you've worked on, but do you have any, I guess, before we get into that, do you have any films that are like some of your most sort of influential films? Oh, wow. That's that question. The answer to that question changes like daily. It's that's totally valid. Like it could be like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to be absolute. It doesn't have to be like, okay, here's my final answer forever and ever. But like, what's something that in your mind, you're like, wow, that was a really impactful film. It's just something that you love. Yeah, yeah. It just is tough because every time it changes. But I'd say like the last time I had, going back to COVID actually, was I watched Inception and what else did I watch? I watched- I, I uh, love Inception and I'm happy you mentioned yeah. it because that's such a great film and- that's one of the only scores that I've purchased the score. Like when that film came out, I purchased the score and I used to just play it all the time by Hans Zimmer and loved like that score is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. No, d definitely. I actually, in that one, I think I like the writing the most and so many films I focused on my craft or I'm focused on the closest craft to me, which would be the, all of those directorial choices I'm seeing or cinema, Photography is that little triumvirate of getting the meaning out of stuff that I'm seeing. But in that film, the writing just really hit me a lot, especially, I don't know, again, like talking about COVID and like how weird the world was at a time and all of like the surrealist message of being within a dream at home. And I love that kind of thing in like a major film, like a major blockbuster film. It seemed the artistry of an indie film. And if you think about his trajectory as a director, it totally makes sense, but it was just such a great film. But again, that, that's just like, what's coming to mind right now when you're asking me, if you ask me tomorrow, it's probably going to be a totally different movie. Yeah. And yeah, I guess most people that love films would certainly say the same thing. So that's why I try to make it not like it's absolute, but I just like to get a sense of people's cinematic styles. I remember, listen, I love Inception. I When I saw it in the theater in 2010, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. I felt, I was like, wow, Christopher Nolan just raised the bar. You just raised the cinematic bar. That's what it felt like, especially seeing that scene where that whole sequence where it was the dream within a dream, within a dream. Yeah. And then just seeing that truck, like the van going over like the guardrail and then 
that's the most inner dream that's in slow motion and just how it cut to like the portion with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like in the hall. It was amazing. It's so good. Yeah, it's, so no, good. it's amazing. Yeah. And I definitely read the script and after that. So the, yeah, the writing is incredible. What, what, how about something that like, what's something very different than Inception that you also love? Total, totally different. And this, I probably get some judgment for this, but the first or also maybe actually maybe the second too, but the Sex in the City movie. So it's, I love rom-coms. I really do. They're, I like a good rom-com to me, too. Although I, I don't have a yeah. frame of reference here because I haven't seen the films, the Sex in the City films. I've seen definitely episodes of the TV show, but I haven't seen the films. Yeah, and it's like just phenomenal filmmaking from a different, totally different lens, if you will. It's hitting all of these amazing cliche moments that make that, if you're into it, if you're not into it, you're not going to like that. But if you appreciate that genre, the gestures that are carried out within that genre and what they mean for somebody watching it, if you think about the history of rom-coms, like it's just done so well the shots are amazing the audio is pristine like even just the framing of and the marking and of each scene is just done so it's like the kind of thing you might not expect in a rom-com to be analyzing and then also just if you're watching a rom-com with your significant other and it's a wonderful experience that's like also the power of cinema i love the much more intellectual cinema as well. But since you asked for something totally different, I would say really great romantic comedies are just something I really love. Listen, everything is valid. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love cinema. If you love cinema enough, it's like loving music, right? If you love right. music enough, you're not going to just like one type of music, right? You're going to so Agreed. many different kinds of music. I might, I'm the kind of guy that if I've, when I used to make mixes, there was an art that's a whole other conversation but when i was in high school i used to make mixtapes and things like that and that was like a thing there was an art to making a mixtape and oh yeah not just the song i would first make a list and it wasn't just the songs having good songs on the mixtape but it was the flow of those songs how they go from one to another but i just love different genres of things so whether it's music i could make a mix and it's like, i could have reggae in one track johnny cash on another track or sure. then like a Maybe even a classical song. It just depends. I like different things. So it's the same thing with films. Like it could be an A24 film that I love or Godfather Part 2 or Ferris Bueller's Day Off is one of my favorite films of all time. That's definitely in my top 10. Oh, it's a great movie. So I guess let's talk, discuss a couple of the films that you worked on. I got a chance to watch Snakehead and I love the music, love the score that you did. Thank I you. It definitely elevated the material and some of the intensity of the scenes for sure. It got very intense, that movie. Thank you. What are, I guess, discuss that film a little bit. Are there any scenes that stick out in your mind that you'd like to discuss? And first, I guess, give sure. a little context about the movie for people that haven't seen it. Sure, so the film is actually, it's about a Chinese immigrant who comes to Chinatown in New York City and she comes through human trafficking and she gets wrapped up in Chinatown's underworld. And it's based on a real character, a real person who existed in Chinatown, who is one of the most prolific human traffickers of all time, who I don't know, if, I think she maybe still in prison or maybe she died in prison, I can't recall the exact fate of that individual, but you can read about her and that's who it was based on. But this Chinese immigrant comes to America in order to raise enough money to, she came to find her daughter essentially, but she needs to raise enough money to get out of servitude to her human traffickers. And she ends up, I don't want to give it away, but she gets intertwined with the cartel, the organized with the under, crime ring. With the underworld, yeah. I have to say. Yeah, the underworld for sure, yeah. I think what was cool and interesting about that film was it's one of these things where it's stuff like that exists. I, like, I didn't know it was based off a true story, but it makes sense because you just imagine, obviously, that things like that are going on, unfortunately, and they're happening. But it really pulls you into that in a pretty realistic and gritty way. Yeah, it was heavy. It was very heavy to work on because it, it's not fantasy. It, and it's also quite prevalent. So it's not even just an isolated few people thing. This is like day in and day out people's realities. Yeah, it's wild. So is there a particular scene that 
you'd like to discuss? Sure. I mentioned that scene before where they're going through Chinatown and the young girl is getting chased and it's all traditional Chinese instruments and mixed with some very ominous synthesizers. But the rest of the film is very different than that musically. There's only a few moments of traditional Chinese instrumentation. Most of it's hybrid organic stuff. So synthesizers mixed with a classical orchestra. And I think some of my favorite scenes from it it's more like a recurring thing. It's the theme for the main character's love of her daughter. So anytime, because that's why she went through with dealing in the human trafficking world and being human trafficked and then also human trafficking others herself is because she missed her daughter. And the music that plays anytime she's searching for her daughter, there's this one scene where she's in Chinatown turning every corner and catching a glimpse of her daughter. And the music there for me was my favorite, I think, because it's the human longing for love and closeness that I got to explore. And the director loved that. And anytime the theme was on screen or implied off screen, we got to use that music. So it's maybe that's not exactly one scene, but it's the type of scene that you see throughout the movie that I really love scoring. Nice. And the second film that we're going to talk about in is I Love You. Is it I Love You, but it's, but it's spelled A-I Love You, or is it A-I Love You? I wasn't sure how people call yeah, it. Yeah, it's a play on words for yeah. sure. So that was the point. It, But everybody's referred to it as A-I Love You. Okay, A-I Love You. Okay, cool. I really actually enjoyed that film. That, that Did was you a, watch I watched the Did whole- you watch it in, in English or in Thai? So that's okay. So that was one of my questions that I was going to say to you. I toggled around in both for a while because I was like, I'm going to see how this sort of plays out in Thai and in English. Like I watched the whole thing, obviously, with the subtitles, but then sometimes I would flip it on to the English dub and then sometimes into the Thai. But mostly I watched it in English, but I did want to see if it felt different in the Thai. So that was literally going to be one of my questions. So I'm like, does the. Do you feel like the movie plays differently if you're watching in the Thailand oh, yeah. English subtitles? Yeah, the I never saw it in English until, and I still haven't really, but when we were working on it, it was all in Thai. It was when Squid Games did so well, Netflix started ramping up their international and their Asian production. And this is a result of that whole producing content in Asia for Netflix. And I did, in fact, when I was working on it, I didn't even have subtitles for some of the scenes and it was in Thai and I don't speak Thai. I didn't even understand the specifics of what they were saying. It's a sci-fi rom-com. It's what I was talking about before. I guess we should give a little context about what AI Love You is. Let's give (laughs) a rundown of it. Yeah, so it's a sci-fi rom-com where AI in Thailand, in this futuristic setting of Bangkok, these buildings are now smart buildings, meaning they're fitted with AI. So your apartment can make stuff for you, can talk to you, all that stuff. And one of these buildings comes, does essentially a body swap with an individual and inhabits a person. And that's as much as I want to give away about what the story is. But with that backdrop, you can imagine what a rom-com might be with that as the context. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely enjoyed watching it. I loved, did you do every piece of score throughout the film, even when they were in the club and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. There's no music that I didn't write in that film. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I really, I loved it. I loved the score that you did. And some standout things that I wrote down, General, I like that montage sequence when she's dating the main character shows like past dates and stuff gone horribly wrong. I thought that was <laughs> fun. <laughs> Thank you. I love actually the score when the AI inhibits Bob's body and just that whole, I felt like it really elevated in the AI just inhabiting a human body for the first time. I felt like the score really complemented what was going on emotionally with the character at that moment. I thought that was, that was a really nice scene. Actually. Thanks. 
Yeah, I had a whole lot of fun with the with this film just because I there aren't too many sci-fi rom-coms out there and just mixing genres is incredibly fun for a composer. Yeah. I can imagine. And I and also I loved the club scene where it looked like the guy was singing karaoke. I couldn't tell if he was a singer or they went to a karaoke spot because it looked like, you know, like maybe a next level of karaoke or something. But I, I really loved that song and the musical choice there. Thanks. I that that was me singing. Oh, was it? <laughs> That's pretty cool. I, very, very poorly on purpose. What happened right. scene they they actually went to a karaoke bar in Bangkok and recorded that. And I reminded them that you can't use a live recording of music like that in a film without clearing it. And they were like, oh no, we have deadlines. Can you write something else and sing some nonsense that looks like a drunk person who's forgetting the words? <laughs> And that's what I did. I wrote some music that would work going into the next cue because all of a sudden there's this dance off thing that I wrote. It's like 80s, get up, get down, fun dance music. But the karaoke part right before that had to go into it. So I wrote some music that transitioned well. And then I had a few drinks and sang some nonsense. <laughs> it was perfect. I really enjoyed that in general. And the music was really good in that scene. Thanks. You know? Thank you. I appreciate that. Definitely. So that's pretty cool knowing the backstory there. They, it was also your vocals. <laughs> I wasn't expecting yep. that, but that's awesome. Yeah, there was a couple of times that I grew up in the 80s as a young kid. Like I was born in the 1980s and I felt like there was an homage to like that kind of thing once in a while. Absolutely. That was the kind of the point. The director, th this was a film where the director really let me do what I wanted to do, but the, and then would react to it. I would do something and then he'd have some feedback. But one of his stipulations was it needs to have a 1980s retro feel. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And I love that because to me, that that is like some of the most wonderful direction I can get saying, here is your vocabulary, say what you want to. And I loved that about it. And the rationale, I believe, I don't, he didn't explicitly say it, but I always thought it to myself was that because the 80s are nostalgic, when you're in this nostalgic place in your mind, you're more receptive to the, the movie going experience of a rom-com because you can get all nostalgic about it and think about the great rom-coms of the 80s and early 90s and have fun, but also feel stuff. So I thought it was a really cool direction to go. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it, that makes perfect sense. I, another film, I'm curious, do you like the movie Drive? Yeah, it's okay. I, yes, some of it. I'm on the fence. For me, this is a much bigger topic and yeah. it, it's... Some days I think this thing, sometimes I think the other thing, and I go back and forth on it. And that is about music that's not written for the film being in the film. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes I just imagine what would it have been like if somebody scored this instead of music supervised it. So when you do needle drops and you put a famous song to it, you're getting extra mileage out of the fact that people feel a certain way about that song already. And then you're putting visuals to it. I didn't know the drive actually, for some reason I thought that music was written the film i didn't realize it was like already known music for some reason oh i believe it's both i believe it's yeah. both but there there's tons of music that's dropped in there and that's like whenever i see movies that kind of heavily feature that kind of like reservoir you know, dogs music. for example that's like complete, yeah like you or like, like pulp you, fiction yeah tarantino stuff it's the filmmaking is so amazing sometimes i just think what happens if this wasn't like a corporate video like if they didn't just take a song and drop it in like maybe it could have been better maybe it could have been worse i just that's the i don't have the answer i'm just it's the kind of thing i think about when i see that decision sometimes yeah. i think wow what happens if you just had the artist who wrote that song try something new for you to the scene but maybe that's backwards thinking and maybe it's the other way around where the scene is cut to the music as opposed to the music's cut to the scene no it's definitely interesting to hear your perspective on it because i've never heard that perspective before really i've heard the perspective of people if they're watching a horror movie this is so heavy-handed like now it's the moment i'm supposed to be scared on that kind of thing and i would if i was a filmmaker approaching a horror film i wouldn't want it to hinge on i'd want it to elevate that kind of what we were 
talking about in the beginning, just in general, but I wouldn't want it to hinge on that. Okay, here's the moment. And I think that's why I don't like when things are too on the nose. If you're watching a crime show and it's like, it's the super cliche, dramatic music. Not that it's sure. bad. It's just telling you how to feel and like when to feel. And I, I don't know. And I think that's why I like Drive because it was something different. It was unique. It was like a crime film, but it had this like 80s synth stuff. And maybe because I wasn't familiar with it, like it was new to me. And even though some of the songs had lyrics and stuff, and maybe they were popular even in, but I wasn't actually familiar with, with that score, or like those songs. So it was kind of, I thought it was pretty cool. It was just something different yeah, yeah. than I'd like seen before. But yeah, pretty cool. So what are you working on now, Roman? Anything like that you could talk about? Anything interesting on the horizon? Yeah, for sure. There's a few things I can't talk about, which I'm actually really, <laughs> sometimes the less you could talk about it, the more excited you are. I don't know if that's because the things you can't talk about might be of a, a higher budget, right? They might be a big going to somewhere bigger with bigger distribution, or maybe it's the fact that you can't talk about it. Yeah. I <laughs> I'm not it. sure which it is, but I'm doing a new one for HBO Max that I can't say anything else about what it is. And I'm doing a new one for National Geographic and Disney Plus, which I can't say what it is, but I'm really excited about both of those. And then there's a few that I can say what I'm working on. One is because of that A, I Love You film, I'm working on another Thai. It's actually a thriller. It's actually a Hollywood movie, but they shot it in Thailand. And that's pretty, I'm pretty excited about that because it's similar to what you liked about A, I Love You, where I'm writing a lot of the club music as well as the score. And as I said, I really like that when I get to write the music that somebody would just pull from an existing song because I can do subtle shifts in the music. Like it could be a club banger, but if somebody is doing one specific thing in that scene, maybe one instrument can do the theme. Like it's just, it's that kind of like handcrafted artistry. I really love when I get the chance to try. So that one's called 1 million followers. I'm pretty excited about that. And then I'm doing a new TV show for an LGBTQ streamer called Reverie. It's the next season of their docu-series called Queens of Kings. And yeah, those are all keeping me pretty busy at the moment. You are so prolific. It's incredible. And I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Seth. Yeah I, I could, yeah, I consider myself to be a pretty hardworking guy. I see that you're definitely hardworking. I like Thank you. It. Yeah. And where could people follow along with what you're doing? Sure. My projects are on two places, depending on if they're out or if they're not out yet. All the teasers are on Instagram and I'm pretty active on Instagram in general. It's electro point music. And if you go to my website, which might be easier to remember, you can find links to all my socials and stuff and music and soundtracks and everything. It's romanmolinodun.com. Roman, thanks again for being on the podcast. And I really sure, enjoyed thanks. this conversation in general. Yeah, yeah, me too, Zeph. It was great to get into some philosophies. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast with your host, Zeph Cota. Today's guest was Roman Molino Dunn, executive producer Jeff Cutler, 